So I ended last week with an encouragement to you from Romans chapter 8. And, and, I, and I made it this statement that this is the reality for the child of God. And, and this is true. This is, this is the reality for you and I from Romans 8. That, that two things are always happening. Whether or not we see them happening, these two things are always happening for the child of God. One, God is at work always bringing glory to himself. Is that true, church? God is always at work bringing glory to himself. Secondly, God is at work bringing all these things, these random circumstances and events and, and these random people that come in and out of our life, he is, he is always at work to do good for his children. Is that true as well? But let's be honest. Very often, very often, in the circumstances of life, that, and, and very often we get so overcome by testing and trial, and we get so overwhelmed with it, that, that we see neither one of those two things happening to be true. Isn't that true as well, church? And just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And the account of Joseph brings to mind a verse of scripture that I want you to set your eyes on this morning before we go to Genesis. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15 this morning, because I think, I think this account, and, and it's not just a story, I'm really careful not to use that word story, this is not just a story that someone wrote down, like, this would make for really good teaching one day, let's write this story down. This is an account, this is an historical account of what took place. In Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about these accounts that we find in the Old Testament, and he says in Romans 15, verse 4, I wish I had time to unpack that. That'll be coming in the future when we get to the book of Romans. But Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days, okay? Is that safe to say that the book of Genesis was written in former days? You agree with me on that? Okay. <laughs> whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, was written for our teaching, was written for our benefit, so that we might have truth, and it was written so that it might accomplish something in our lives. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I like the part that says, through encouragement of the Word of God, I might have hope, but there's a phrase that comes before that, isn't there? It says, through endurance, think of perseverance, think of this, the, the word there in the original language means the ability to, to if you, as it will, were to, to remain under heavy weight of pressure and life circumstances pressing down on you. That's what this word means, this, this endurance. Hmm. Accounts like Joseph. And accounts like what Christ went through, for the child of God, they should serve to give us an encouragement that if they could do it, we can too. Not through our own willpower, not through our own strength, but through the power of God that's at work through us. And it's supposed to produce what? What is the last word of verse 4, church? Hope. 
It's supposed to produce hope. These two things, that, that ability to, to persevere and remain under heavy weight and pressure and, and, and the encouragement of God's word, the two have to work together. And often what I find to be true in my life, and I'm sure it's true with you, I've counseled with several of you, one of the things that happens when we get into test and trial, when life seems to be a very heavy weight on top of us, one is, the, one, is one of the first things we're tempted to do with our spiritual disciplines right? How can you expect me to read my Bible when all this stuff is going on? Because it's in the Bible where we find our hope. It's in the Word of God where we find our strength. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but, but I have been praying all week that for the one person or maybe the two people or maybe the 25 in this room this morning that, that feel so crushed by the pressure of life that you will find hope in the account of Joseph this morning. But you've got to do the hard work too. You've got you to bear under that. You've got you to bear that weight. And let's be honest. The story of Joseph, the account of Joseph, makes for, for really great tales for a Sunday school class of elementary age children, doesn't it? Makes for really great tales. But I would submit to you this morning that it makes for an even, even greater source of genuine hope for the children of God who are going through trial and test. The average kid in second grade has no idea what a trial or test is. He thinks just because his mom got mad at him that morning because he didn't want to eat his oatmeal that he's going through a terrible test, right? But for those of us who are the children of God who are living life and understanding that life can be really hard at times, I hope that the account of Joseph will really help us to, to, to buck up, as it were, and bear this weight. So let's go to Genesis chapter 41 this morning. Genesis chapter 41. And so we find right there in verse 1, it's two years now have passed. Two years have passed since we were, we were with, you thought we just were gone seven days for preaching through Genesis. We've now gone through two years. For some of you, yeah, a holiday week always seems longer, doesn't it? It felt like two years this week, didn't it? Yeah, we've, we've gone through two years now of Joseph's life, the day in and day out of being in that prison, the day in and day out of, of wondering, is this the day I'm going to get out? Is, is, is the, is the cupbearer going to remember what I asked him to remember? And finally getting to the point probably where if Joseph's anything like you and I, we've given up hope that the cupbearer is ever going to really remember, right? I pointed out last week, that probably one of the biggest lessons we have to learn in trial and test is, is that we just have to patiently wait through them. We have to patiently wait through them. So two years after Joseph interprets the cupbearer and the baker's dreams, and they come true exactly as how God told him they would come true, two years after that, and then 13 years now after being sold into slavery, 13 years, and think in those 13 years, the huge reversals of fortune that Joseph has gone through. It all began with him riding in to camp where his brothers are, and he's got the coat, the, the, the special coat on, and his brothers get so mad, they throw him in a pit. He's stripped naked. He's thrown in the bottom of this pit, and he's left there to rot, it, and it, it begins like that, and then he gets elevated out of the pit only to find out he's being sold to slave traders, and he gets sold to slave traders, heads down to Egypt, only to find that he rises in Potiphar's house. There's no one more important in Potiphar's house than he himself. He has charge of 
of everything, only to have that stripped away from him. Now he goes from, from being somewhat elevated back down into the pit. He goes to jail for it, and he rises in the jail, and he thinks he's getting out only to have two more years of waiting. It's like God is playing whack-a-mole with him. You know the fair game, right? Whack-a-mole? And, and the only mole that God wants to hit in Joseph's mind is Joseph, right? Not concentrating on the other 12 holes in this game. Every time you come up, Joseph, I am going to wail on you. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that's what God's doing to you? So we come to Genesis 41. We're just going to read just going to read the first 36 verses this morning, okay? We could have read the whole chapter. We're just going to do 36 this morning, okay? After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the aisle, Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then... The cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. Literally, there's like, what, one, two, three, four, five English words to, to really what the Hebrew says is, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not a good way to start, is it? <laughs> it's not a good way to start. He says, no, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph, or Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, and sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. 
the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Whoa. Talk about, a, talk about an interesting text of Scripture. First of all, let's unpack Pharaoh's dreams. I talked last Sunday about God's use of dreams, and I'm not going to go through that whole thing again, and what that means in the Scriptures, and what may or may not be mean for us today. But let's understand something here. These dreams given to Pharaoh were very gracious dreams. This is, this is an example of God's, God's grace in the life of somebody. He is warning Pharaoh. He is warning not just Pharaoh. He's warning all of Egypt. He's warning them about what's to take place here. And that comes from a gracious, good, and kind God. And so Pharaoh dreams these two dreams. And what we note here is, is that Pharaoh goes to his magicians, as the scripture says here. Look back with me. And he dreams these dreams, and it says there in verse 8 that he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. This dream, these two dreams, these back-to-back dreams, have him so troubled that he has to get some answers here. He's very bothered by it. Now, what we may not understand, and I tried to point this out last week when we were talking about dreams, there, there's this there is this understanding that we have to understand historically. Dreams were a big part of Egyptian religion, okay? They were a big part of it. And, and, and the Egyptians prided themselves on their ability to understand, interpret, and give meaning to people about their dreams. One of the main roles of these guys who are noted here in verse 8 as magicians and wise men, one of their main roles, one of the ways they served Pharaoh was by interpreting his dreams for him. Now, I don't know about you, but, but these guys were probably early day mentalist type guys who are able just to read the Pharaoh, read his body language, and kind of take the dream and kind of take something that they know a little bit about his past and say, oh, this is probably from your so-and-so or whatever, and this is what they mean. And they're able to give the, the explanations in some, in some way so that at least part of it comes true so they get to keep their job, Right? Right? Kind of like when you go to a county fair, or well, they don't do it anymore. They used to do it up at Cedar Point, too, like the guy who could guess your name, age, or weight, right? That's kind of what these guys were doing here, right? Here's the thing, though. We see, we see that these, these, 
these dreams have really bothered Pharaoh, unlike other dreams. Because notice the word behold six times here. Verse 2, and behold. In verse 3, and behold. In verse 5, and behold. In verse 6, and behold. These are expressions as Moses is writing this down. This is the way Pharaoh, Pharaoh is, this is not like this little dream where, hey, I had a dream that I was falling and falling and falling, and then I realized when I woke up that I was on the floor. Right? These dreams really troubled him. These dreams had him really baffled. They're built upon sevens, and they're built upon two, two groups. There, there's sevens there, and there's two groups. There's an attractive, desirable group, and there's an ugly, undesirable group. And as he considers these dreams, let's be honest. For, for these experienced magicians, they could have come up with some explanation. How many of you agree with me on that? I mean, these guys are good at, at doing this. This wasn't that difficult. There's, there's a series of sevens. You have, you, have, you have good people, and you have attractive things in this, and you have unattractive things in this. We can come up with some kind of explanation that will make Pharaoh happy, and we'll get to keep our jobs till the next dream, right? Hmm. This wasn't even like Nebuchadnezzar when Daniel needed to come in and interpret the dream. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream. He couldn't remember the dream. And, and, and not, so the wise people there in, in Babylon, they not only had to come up with the interpretation, they had to come up with the dream. Pharaoh had the dream in great detail here, didn't he? And I want to point out to you that in all of this, in the fact at the end of verse 8 where it says none could interpret them to Pharaoh, understand what's going on here. You don't see it explicitly spelled out in your Bible, but let me tell you what's going on here. God is actively at work keeping them from coming up with a good explanation. God is actively at work. And we see a sovereign God here at work, and he's going to do, in doing this, he's setting the stage for probably one of the most improbable rising of the ashes that we have ever seen throughout all of human history in doing this. Joseph's about to experience what I talked about last week, all things working for his good and the good of many others, and also all things working for the glory of God. He's about to experience it. And I want to just point this out. And this is something that happens to you and I. Maybe it's just me, but I got to feel like somebody else in this room is like me. How many of you, when you experience trials, you kind of develop the woe is me attitude? Like, this never happens to anybody else. Or, why is this all about me? God, God, why are you doing this to me? Like, I am so sick of getting on social media this week. Hey, if you haven't checked your mail, your property taxes in your house just got reassessed, right? Okay, it happens every three years. This isn't some kind of conspiracy. Doesn't have to do with who's in the White House. I've seen it all this week. Every three years, check your state law. But we, 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 get, we open that letter, we're like, oh. Why did my house get valued so much? Like your neighbor's doing the exact same thing you're doing. The exact same thing you're doing. But we develop that mindset, don't we? 
And let me point this out to you. Is it just possible? Is it just let your mind stretch this far with me? Is it just possible that all of the testing and trial that Joseph went through wasn't even about him? Is that possible? Yeah, it is, because God is a much bigger God than what we limit him to being. And God has been using Joseph way back when he was a teenager in throwing the pit. And even before that, when he was telling his family about his dreams and all this stuff, God was preparing him for this moment. In Esther, you read this really great verse that, in where Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Guess what? Joseph didn't come of his own volition to the kingdom. He was literally dragged to that kingdom, and he's come for such a time as this. Not because Joseph is so wonderful, but because we have a very big God. We sang about him, behold our God. Seated on his throne, doing exactly what he wants to do, when he wants to do it. No matter what you and I think we have control of, we can't control this mighty God. So God's at work here. And just like in any good tale... You ever met somebody who knows a guy? I don't know how to get stuff done, but I know a guy. The cupbearer knows a guy. The cupbearer knows a guy. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Hey, uh, duh. I know a guy. I know a guy. I got this. And let's understand, when the leader of a powerful empire is troubled, all of his staff is troubled along with him. Are they not? Their, their jobs are all in jeopardy, and it's at this moment that the cupbearer has this memory that jolts him into action, and he's like, duh, stupid, stupid. Romans eight twenty eight. God's doing all things for his glory. Think about it. Mighty Egypt, with all of its various gods and its wonders, Pharaoh himself is this big, powerful god. He's worshipped. They worship the Nile River. They worship the sun. They worship all these things. And Pharaoh is at the mercy of a Hebrew slave. Who gets the glory, church? God gets the glory in this. God gets the glory in this. He literally is reduced to summoning to the prison to get this slave, and he needs this slave right now in front of him. Only, only our God would do that. Only our God would do that. You see, this is a God who's actively at work to bring glory to himself, and this won't be the last time that Pharaoh would know, that, or that a Pharaoh would know that there is a God who is superior to all of his gods. And it certainly isn't the last time, not in your life, not in my life, not in history, where God will use the weak to confound the mighty. That's the kind of God that we serve, which means there's hope for you and I who are weak ones, right? He uses the weak to confound the mighty. So the cupbearer knows a guy, and I want you to catch, I even drew attention to it as I was reading this in verse 14. I want you to see this, that Joseph has a, has a capital B, capital I, capital G. He has a big God. He's got a big God. Do you have a big God? 
Okay, you say that in church on a Sunday morning, and you sang some really good songs that reinforce that, but on Wednesday afternoon, I mean like Wednesday afternoon by the time you're dragging back into the house, or Wednesday late evening, or by Friday night after a week of work, do you still have a big God church? Here's Joseph after 13 years of feeling like he's the only one who's been suffering all this stuff, and he still has a capital B, capital I, capital G, big view of God. So verse 14, Pharaoh sent and calls for Joseph, and so he has to get cleaned up to come before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 15, I've had a dream. And there's no one who can interpret it. And you get the picture in your mind that Pharaoh's magicians, I mean, think back to, think back to when you were a kid and you watched the movie Ten Commandments, right? And remember when Moses and Aaron come in there and, and, and all of the Egyptian wise men are just kind of, you know, they're flaunting around and they're walking by the Pharaoh and they're doing all this stuff. And, and they're, they're going to come in and they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to bring in this dolt in front of here and he's going to actually show us up? The magicians are all kind of like, watch this guy. He's going to be hung in the next 10 minutes. And so Pharaoh tells him the problem. He says, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. Looking at all his magicians, there's no one who can interpret this. And they're like, well, yeah, right, because no one can interpret this. And he says, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it not only is Joseph's neck on the line, guess who else's neck is on the line here? Cupbearer's neck is on the line now. I've been told that you know how to interpret dreams. This is Joseph's big chance to shine, isn't it? And yet, who shines in verse 16? It's Joseph's big chance to shine because, remember this, nowhere, nowhere, when you look in the account above there, nowhere does the cupbearer say that it was Joseph's God who interpreted the dream, even though Joseph made it very clear to the cupbearer, didn't he? Nowhere did he say that. Joseph had every opportunity to steal all the glory for himself. And you know what? Years earlier, Joseph would have done that, wouldn't he have? Old Joseph would have done that. We saw that with his brothers, didn't we? When he gave them the dreams, it's like, I had this dream, and I was all above you. You guys were bowing down before me, and that's a really cool dream, isn't it, brothers? No. The words are barely out of Pharaoh's mouth in verse 16. And, and Joseph, and I, and I told you, there's five English words there, and they basically, they mean either no or not so. Not so. That's not a good way to get yourself out of prison whenever the guy says to you, I hear you can do this, and you say to him, no. But before he can say off with your head, notice what he says. My God, God, God will give you the answer you're looking for here. There's so many things that we could talk about here. There was great risk. There was great risk for Joseph in this land of, of this pluralism of gods and Pharaoh himself being one of the number one gods in Egypt, right? There's great danger in him saying, um, 
yeah, all your gods and all your magicians and all the things that they've been appealing to can't answer it, but I have a God who can. Foreign gods are not welcome in Egyptian society, or any society, for that matter. They're not welcome here. And what he does is, Joseph does what you and I need to be busy doing in all of our life. We talk about it all the time. Why are you here? Well, I'm here according to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, do all for what? God's glory. Well, Joseph now is put in the crucible of testing here. This is the ultimate test for this guy. And as he faces this test, he passes it with flying colors because he doesn't draw any attention to himself. Because here's the thing that you have to understand, church. We talked about it at the end of last Sunday. I reminded you at the beginning of this service, God's doing two things. He is, he is working all things together for our good, but he's actively going to get his glory. And until you and I understand the program and we're busy bringing God glory, we're never going to experience all things working good for God's glory and good things happening to us. It doesn't work that way. And he says, no, my God's going to answer this. And this absolutely has been Joseph's pattern of living. He has, he has conducted himself, ever since he got in Egypt, he has conducted himself in such a way that he had a big view of God, and the people around him knew that he had a big view of God. How many of you wrestle with knowing what the next thing to do is, or the next right thing to do is? You wrestle with that? Let me give you the answer. Let me give you the easy answer to that. The next right thing to do is to do something that glorifies God. Did you catch that? The next right thing for you and I to do is to do something that glorifies God. I can absolutely tell you the wrong thing to do, and that is anything that would rob God's glory. And too often we make life a lot more complicated than it needs to be. We exist for God's pleasure and for his glory. And so the right thing for us to do in any situation is the next thing that brings God glory. You'll notice that when Pharaoh explains the dream, in verse 25, Joseph interprets it and he says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, and who gets the credit? God, God, the Almighty One, has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And, and you notice in verse 25, and you notice in verse 28, it says, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And you notice in verse 32, and it says that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Three specific times as he interprets this dream to Pharaoh, he makes it all about what Almighty God is doing. Can I say this again? Joseph had a big view of God. And it comes through in how he addresses Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the most powerful guy on the face of the earth at this time. And, and Joseph fears his God more than he fears Pharaoh. It's a good lesson for all of us. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? If you're not fearing God first and foremost then you are being trapped by a fear of something that's less than an almighty God. Now, I want to point out to you one other way where God gets the glory here at the end of this. 
So in verses 33 through 36, as Moses records this for us, catch what's going on here. He interprets the dream, right? And at the end of verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about, okay? You're, put yourself in Pharaoh's mind. You have just heard some really bad news, haven't you? It's like, okay, seven years good, seven really bad years. That's going to affect my favorability ratings, right? I mean, things are no different, people. He cared about what his people thought about him. And notice what Joseph does. You talk about God getting his glory. God uses a Hebrew slave to tell the most powerful man on earth what to do. Joseph doesn't even skip a beat. And let's understand here, Joseph has been being prepared all of his life for this moment. He's a manager. He's a problem solver. In Potiphar's house, he had to manage people. He had to manage money. He had to deal with problems. In the prison, he has to manage people. He has to manage grumpy prisoners. He has to manage the the people who are keeping them incarcerated. He has to make this all work. God has been preparing him for this moment for the last 13 years. And in the moment, Joseph rises to the top because of what God does. He knows how to manage he knows how to get things done. He, you know, he, he, all of it, the early dreams, the humbling by his brother, the desperation of his life in a slave caravan, the management skills in Potiphar's house, the unfair imprisonment, the further management training in the prison, all this stuff. And I ask you, who would orchestrate it this way? And I would answer it this way, none but a holy, all-powerful God. Not even Hollywood would write a script like this. And let's remember, has Joseph been released from his prisonhood yet? Have, have you seen Joseph being like given a reprieve yet? No. Nothing happens between verses 32 and 33. And immediately in verse 33, you have... Joseph giving the most powerful man in the world some advice for how to deal with a famine. And it's really wise advice. Here's the advice. First of all, pick someone who's discerning and wise. Do you see it there? Pick a discerning and wise man and put him in charge over this whole process. (laughs) Do Do you know what kind of a backhanded insult that is to Pharaoh? Do you catch it? Do you catch it? Church, did you get it? This is dripping with irony. You can laugh at this. This is kind of funny. Pharaoh, that was sad. (laughs) Pharaoh, you're not smart enough to deal with this. Find someone who's smarter than you. Pick someone who's wise and discerning, unlike you, Pharaoh. And here's the plan. Here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. Then you need to appoint overseers under this guy in verse 34. And and for the next seven years, take 20%. You want to talk about affecting your favorability ratings? Tax your people 20%. That's what he's saying here. Take 
20% right off the top of everything that they produce. And you put it under the charge of these people who will store it up in cities so that whenever we get to the famine time, we'll be ready to roll. We'll be ready to roll. And notice this. Pharaoh doesn't argue with him. Pharaoh doesn't say, but, but what about this? What about this? You get the idea here. Pharaoh's sitting on this really lavish throne in his throne room, and he is literally taking advice from a guy who has just had his first shower in quite a while. And he's just taking it all in. And I ask you again, I've asked it over and over, but church, who would do that so that he gets the glory? Only, a, only an all-powerful holy God would do it that way. And like I said, we're on the cusp of one of the greatest comebacks in human history, and it would be really easy to make this whole chapter about Joseph. In fact, my, my Bible has it, the heading, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and I'm like, no, no, that's wrong. A powerful God uses an insignificant dude to accomplish his purposes. That would be a better title. You see, we could make this all about Joseph, his hard work ethic, his positive attitude, his never-say-die living. And, and, and I could stand up here and I could pump you full of those platitudes and tell you, you just got to hang in there, you just got to go out and try harder, you just got to keep having a positive attitude in all of this. You can have a positive attitude till the cows come home, and until God does something with you, nothing is going to change. Do you know that? You see, to make it all about Joseph is to rob God of the glory he deserves. Because the comeback that Joseph is experiencing here is all because of God's power, it's all because of his wisdom, so that he himself would get the ultimate glory in this. What does that mean to you and me today? God saves us. God selects us. God, God puts us in places. God puts events in our lives and circumstances, not so that we would be comfortable, not so that we would get good attention, not so that, that we can even be a blessing to others, all these things that we talk about. God is doing what he does so that he gets ultimate glory. And the sooner that you and I plug into that and buy into that program, the more satisfied we are going to be with life. Do you know it's possible to be satisfied even in the middle of a circumstance and trial? Do you know that? Not satisfied in yourself, not satisfied with the circumstance, but satisfied with the God of the circumstance and resting in Him. You see, Paul had it right when he wrote in Ephesians 1 that all this stuff is to the praise of His glory. All this stuff is to the praise of His glory. And too often, we make it all about what's happening to me. Now, in just a minute, we're going to end the service with a song. We always do this. But, but I want to just give you the first words of this song. Hey, hey Preston. Audible, can you slide up the first words of that hymn we're going to sing? 
Yeah. Look, look at these words. Complain my soul because God is on the throne. Be very impatient with the grief and pain that you've been given. Help God as he tries to help you because you can't trust him. Now, we would be idiots to sing it that way, but do we live that way, church? Church, do we live that way? I don't want you to be liars, so I put this up early, and I'm going to pray, and you can get your heart adjusted to line up with that prayer. Put it back up there, Preston. They forgot the words. (laughs) How many of you have sung songs that have made you liars? Let's not be liars singing this song. Let's not be liars singing this song. This is, a clo- this is more of a Psalm 77 song than the songs we sang earlier in the service, by the way. This is a real life song, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we don't often want to be still, especially when we're in pain. We want to writhe in that pain. We want everyone around us to know we're in that pain. We're just looking for somebody to tell our story to so that they can feel sorry for us. And and really what we really need to do is just to be quiet before you. And remember, just as we saw in Psalm 77 this morning when we were reading it, our God is a mighty God who does mighty things. And be reminded that you're on our side. So help us to be enduring believers, I pray, to bear patiently whatever it is you've chosen to test us with. Give us a heart of praise, even for the tough times, I pray. Because you are a faithful God. We praise you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.